Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. Today's episode is from our Sunday Adult Faith Formation Forum, Purity, Gender, and the Gospel, led by Mark Gravrock. For more information on the community and ministries of St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows, you can visit our website, smlutheran.org. And now, here's Mark Gravrock with an opening song. Take, oh, take me as I am. Summon up what I shall be. Set your seal upon my heart and live in me. Take, oh, take me as I am. Summon up what I shall be. Capitulating to uh, plug us to give some sense of where in the world we've been and where in the world are we going. Uh, two weeks ago, our first time together, we spent time in the, our modern contemporary world of purity regulation and purity rules and laws. Uh, we don't call it that, but we have them. And we saw that, among other things, we saw that it's a universal human phenomenon. It's in every culture, I believe, in the world although it varies from culture to culture, so it's not identical in every place. We saw that when we're looking at our purity rules that we live with, um, often they are deeply gut-felt. We just, well, well, yeah, that's the way it is. That's kind of at the bottom of a lot of what we feel about it. And then when we start to actually examine, so why? What's the reason for that particular one? It's, we come up with one, or two reasons and, and those kind of evaporate and then, well, I don't know why. It's just because that's the way it is. That's how we're shaped. Um, until we come across folks who have a different set of purity laws and find out, oh, I guess it's not always the same. We found that, um, that purity, our purity rules from culture to culture um, often have to do with, uh, with setting boundaries to what is normal and what is appropriate for our lives. And that set, setting of boundaries also sets, uh, helps create identity. Every community has its own boundary setting um, rules to shape who we are and tell us who we are. Um, we saw that, that purity often has to do with those boundary issues of life, the liminal zones of life, with birth especially, and sexuality and death. Those are the most prominent issues in purity and things that would go along with that. We saw that there are one of the reasons for, our, one of the things that purity does for us in, in our culture, in biblical culture, and in every culture, is it helps me, help us to feel safe. It helps us to know where we stand and what we can count on and what's solid and what, where, where we can be to be firm. The flip side of that is that if you happen to be on the boundary or across the boundary, purity excludes you. Purity, if you find yourself in a liminal zone of your life or in a, in a liminal way of being, uh, purity excludes you or threatens you. So it cuts two ways. And as we moved last week into looking at, at Levitical purity, the Old Testament purity law, we saw that purity, Old Testament purity, shares in common a system with the whole ancient Near East. Let me put that one up. 
that the, the whole ancient Near East had has a similar purity culture that they all imbibed together. And that in the Bible, um, Old Testament folks, however they did it, and uh, part of my confession of faith is I believe God's involved in this, is shaping common ancient Near Eastern purity for a particular focus. Taking what's there, God seems to love to do this, to take what's there in the world and then refocus it and tweak it and shape it for a particular aim. The Levitical purity has some central values. Above all, life versus death. Secondly, wholeness of life. That life, when life is broken or fragile or, or shattered in some way, that's impure. So wholeness of life testifies to the gift of life the way God would wish it to be. And then the maintenance of the orders of creation, the boundaries, keeping species separate. So the cats are always cats and dogs are always dogs, and etc. You don't mix fabrics, you don't mix other things. The very act of creation in Genesis 1 is an act of dividing, of separating realm from realm so that life can thrive within those zones. And so the purity then, the exercise of Levitical purity also helps maintain creation. It's a way for the human race to participate in the maintenance of God's creation. And so there's, a, there's almost a salvific kind of purpose in that. All of that, of course, we also saw was within a patriarchal frame. So it's got male-dominated and, uh, and uh, top-down kind of um, structures embedded in all of it as well. The last part of that that we saw last week, and we finally got to it at the last few minutes of our time together, was these five verses in Leviticus 18. I'm calling them five seed verses. The talk, five verses that talk at the that speak to the proper use of seed, semen, sexual seed, and the waste of seed. Um, implicit in that, by the way, we didn't get to this last time, but if the focus is on the, the uh, proper use of male seed, what does that say about the female contribution to the system? Second-hand citizen. Second-hand citizen. Pretty important. You can't plant your seed in the air, okay? Seed has to go in the soil, and so the picture is, even to use that same word, semen in, in English and in Latin, and the, the same word, different word in Hebrew, both means agricultural seed and sexual seed, both. With seed, you are planting it somewhere. There needs to be soil that's fertile in order for the, the plant to produce, right? Of course, you've got a patriarchal bent in that one as well. If any time that a couple could not produce children, guess whose fault it was? The woman's. Yeah. So it was never the problem of the seed, it's the problem of the soil. To the point where at the time of Jesus, as the rabbis would talk about, debate how many children do you need to have in order to fulfill that first command, you should be fruitful and multiply. And they debated that. Is it one boy and one girl? Is it how many, how many should it be? And if one of the things that some of the rabbis said was that if a woman, if a couple could not produce a child, it was the responsibility of the man to divorce her and find another field that could produce. Now this patriarchal bent in all this stuff. Well, what is that in the first sentence? What's that capitalized word, or is that an acronym? A and E. Um, you'll see it on your sheet. Ancient. I, I was too lazy to spell it out. Ancient Near Eastern. A and E is ancient Near Eastern purity. That's that whole world, whole surrounding world of, oh, of the Bible. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so last time we were looking at these, yeah. Did they never figure out if a guy got someone else and couldn't get her pregnant, and then he got another wife and couldn't get her pregnant? Didn't it ever figure out that it was not always her fault? I think somebody must have figured that out. It just never made it into the text, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, they weren't. They were patriarchal, but they weren't totally stupid. Okay. Well, Henry VIII was. <laughs> Henry, Henry VIII was, okay. Okay, so here are these five that we looked at, and I want to walk through them again to look at them. At them. I'm, I'm, and again, it doesn't say this in the text, but as I look at these five commandments together, they all seem to me to be focusing around uh, this precious gift of seed, this precious gift of life, sexually produced. 
um, and how to how to uh, how to steward it. Okay. So the the first one, um, the co command against against um, menstrual sex, and the reason, as we saw last time, is because the seed can't. There there will be no production of of no plants going to be formed. Okay. During that those during those days of the month, there is no conception that can happen, and that's the only reason. Unless they're just really scared of blood or something, that's the only reason to forbid this. Is because the seed cannot produce. By the way, what does that say about the purpose of sex? To make babies. Make babies. You can see how that this this notion has has infected really all of the Western Church's thinking, especially through the Catholic Church and its heirs of what sex is for. And it's only very recently that the Catholic Church has started to make allowances for sex, not for the purpose of procreation. Well, the Bible isn't that way. I mean, this, this law is here. But if you read the Bible, they're not... The Old Testament particularly is not prudish about sex. If you read something like the Song of Solomon, you have a, a celebration of the gift of human sexuality and relationship without any thought whatsoever of procreating. It's clear that there's, there are far, far more and grander purposes for our sexuality than making babies. But that's certainly what's involved in this one, I think. The second one, again, not totally clear whether kinsman means a literal kinsman, in which case this forbids um, incest. Or if it means kinsman Israelite, in which case it's forbidding adultery. And in either case, it's, it's unclean, it's defilement, and it's um, you're not, now it's not clear whose seed this is. So if a child is produced, whose child is this? So with the lines of, of ownership and descent and property and all of that, whose kid is this? This is introducing chaos into the system. This is the offering to Moloch. You shall, and it says literally, of your seed you shall not give. Of this precious gift of life that God has, has given you, you shall not turn it over as a sacrifice to this alien idol. That's a, it profanes the name of God. Do not take this precious gift of, gift of life and kill it. Okay, so that was talking about child sacrifice, but not, in other words, uh, if you were, if Moloch was a sexual god and not mad, masturbating in front of it. It's, I mean, it doesn't... No, as far as I'm aware, there's nowhere in Scripture a prohibition of masturbation. Okay. Although you can see how, with purity thinking, they could have had one, because you're wasting seed. Isn't there a passage about spilling your seed on the ground? Yeah, that's the one passage that some that some traditionally have thought may apply to masturbation is the passage in um, in Genesis where um, these are Judah's kids. Uh, one son, his wife, died, he dies without leaving a child, so his wife is to so his brother is to take his wife as as his own wife, and the first child produced then would be the dead man's child. That's the Leveret law. And he refuses. He doesn't want to share that inheritance. He doesn't want to split it up. And so he intentionally spills his seed on the ground. Same thing with the next kid after that. Um, that's, that's gotten the term onanism, because the guy's name is Onan. It's not masturbation. It's refusal to raise up a child for your brother. It's greed, wanting to make sure all the inheritance stays with your own children, not with your brother's kid. But yeah, you can see how issues around that, even though the Bible doesn't address masturbation as far as I've ever seen, could easily become a purity matter. And I think has become a purity matter in our culture. Uh, this one, though, um, don't sacrifice your kids. Here's the last of the five. We'll skip the fourth one for the moment. This was the one about animals. This is the only one that directly addresses women's behavior. Um, with an animal, you shall not give your lying for defilement with it, and a woman shall not stand before an animal to lie with it. This is perversion. It's mixture. It's confusion. This is unclean on two levels. One is the seed issue, that if uh, that to for a man to give his seed to an animal or for a woman to receive the seed of an animal, 
is wasting the seed either way. So this precious gift of life is wasted in a rather weird way. And the other is that term mixture or perversion. We're crossing species. We're, we're, keeping, we're not keeping the lines of creation straight. Um, you can, oh, <clears throat> better not skip that one. This is the one where it was only afterwards that Peggy told me that I had misspelled abomination. It was abomination or something like that. It's fixed now. Thank you. With a male you shall not lie the lines of a woman. It is, it is detestable. And the reason now is clear. In this context, anyway, for a man to lie with a man is to waste the seed. There will be no production. And I think we're to imagine all of this in a, in a time when Israel is just beginning to get settled and they're, try, they're trying to thrive, trying to survive out of the desert first and then to begin to, to, begin to multiply and thrive. Um, it's pretty important not to waste that gift of life. You can see why these issues come to the fore during this time in their history. You can also see why, with this one, as we mentioned last time, there is no prohibition of female with female sex, because there's no seed wasted in that patriarchal sense. Make sense? Okay. Before we move on, I want to give you a chance to respond to that and raise any thoughts that you have around these laws. Susan. Uh, wasn't there a mention of women with women in the Sodom and Gomorrah story? Nope. No? I don't know if you heard the question, was there a mention of women with women in the Sodom and Gomorrah story? There is not. The only one in the Bible is in Romans chapter 1. Oh, okay. Uh, how else is the word abomination used, or where else is it used in Scripture? Important question. And I'm not going to give you a full answer to that right now because that would take most of the hour. But it's all over the place. Uh, and in lots of different frameworks. Uh, the first place, I think I mentioned last time, the first place it shows up as we read the order of the books of the Bible is in Genesis when Israel goes down to Egypt to, to stay. And uh, Joseph tells his father Jacob, don't tell them that you're shepherds because shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. No explanation at all. Just shepherds are an abomination. That's the first time it shows up. Um, the second time it showed up, in book order anyway, was the one that we saw about um, some of the animals. Some of the birds are an abomination. You shall not touch them. You shall not eat them. Didn't God make them? Why are they an abomination? Abomination, and then it shows up in lots of contexts. In the Proverbs, it shows up in a lot of moral contexts. Here are the things that the Lord hates and abominates. They're an abomination to the Lord. A lying tongue, a deceptive spirit, that kind of thing. Um, the, the kind of thing that abomination focuses on is just across the board. There are all kinds of different kinds of abomination and different kinds of contexts. The word seems to mean something like, this is really, really impure and it makes our guts turn. That's, there's a real visceral <clears throat> to the term abomination. And that's the way we hear it in these conversations around same-sex unions. We, that's whenever it's talked about, you can hear that same <clears throat> in people's arguments, right? That's, the, that's, that's what it's getting at. Okay. Is that enough of a... Yeah, I just thought if we understood how it's being used, we might... Anything like that. 
I wish I wish I could say it were that consistent that all of these always invoke that word abomination, but they don't always seem to. It's a mix. Um, sometimes the terms show up and sometimes they don't. It doesn't seem consistent to me. But but yeah, often it will show up in those contexts. It seems like some people are quick to say all oh, that union is an abomination, but they didn't remember all of the ones you said about lying and that's right. Those sort of things that I'm not an abomination. No. But in fact, that's why we need Christ. Okay, before, as we, as we move on from here then into today's, one of the things I want to really make sure is clear is that the purity world of Leviticus and the Old Testament, the purity world is deeply focused on maintaining, uh, maintaining the boundaries and structures of creation. Yeah? I've, I've called attention to that verb of, of dividing and separating that's there in Genesis, and it's there when God tells Moses to tell um, Aaron, you shall teach the people to divide, to separate clean from unclean. And then in, that, in chapter 20, when it comes back to that again, you shall observe this distinction, you shall distinguish between the clean and the unclean animal, for I have distinguished you from the nations, I have separated you from the nations. We get that those multiple levels of separation for the sake of creation and for the sake of God's project with Israel. Um, that, that maintenance of creation, this boundaries of creation, becomes really crucial. We're gonna, what we're going to move into today is, particularly in the major part of what we'll look at today, is um, what happens when creation comes undone. Okay? So today, um, Old Testament pushback. This Levitical purity is not the only thing that you'll find and you're not going to find other texts that say, oh no, we changed our mind and this is not impure, or you won't find those. What you'll find is other stuff that pushes up against Levitical purity. Um, I'm going to talk about the, I like to talk about what I think of as, as biblical trajectories. You know what a trajectory is, where you, know, you toss a ball, or you launch a rocket, or you shoot an arrow with whatever force and angle it starts with, after, after a certain point gravity catches it and starts to bring it down, that's the trajectory of work. Biblical trajectories are not that smooth, okay? But I want to invoke this picture because there's all kinds of stuff in scripture that's in motion, that's going somewhere. Um, we talked about human sacrifice as one example last time. I'll mention the kingship one this time, about having kings. We talked about the kingdom of God, and we get, are you comfortable with that term nowadays, the kingdom of God? More familiar with it than comfortable. Yeah, I mean, if you said to us, do we want a king in America, we don't know. We don't want a king in America, okay. No. Any other discomfort around kingship of the kingdom of God? Besides the, our broken human thing that we don't want to be in charge? I just think it's old-fashioned. Old-fashioned? Well, it's patriarchal, too. Patriarchal? It's rather male, yeah. But it is, it's saying that because you were born, you deserve to rule. And I think we have decided in today's world that just because you're born of a certain lineage, that doesn't necessarily entitle you to rule. So your birth certificate doesn't count. Well, I mean, it certainly means. <laughs> I'm not going to go all the no, way and okay. that. But I mean, in terms of that, yeah. that you're born, God said you could rule. What we're That's talking not. about is classism that this is classist as well, sure. If you read the storyline of the Old Testament, um, of course there are no, no, no particular kings to deal with in Genesis except foreign kings that are a problem. You get into Exodus and you're, we're captives in Egypt. And we, this kind of paradigm, bad king is Pharaoh who owns everything and controls everything. And God breaks Israel out, creates this people out of slavery from Egypt and a lot of the laws in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy are designed to make sure that Israel never becomes a kingdom, that Israel never takes on Egypt's role. That's, uh, that's a, a key theme running especially through the, the Exodus laws. This is not the way we're going to do it. 
you get into the story of, the, of Joshua and the judges and Israel's early foundation in the land, they had no kings. Then you finally get to the book of Samuel, and the uh, Philistines are Wampanoag because they have kings and they have iron, and that combination is a little bit too much for us. And so we come crying to Samuel to say, would you ask God please to give us a king? Remember Samuel's response to that? God is our king. We are not going to have a king. To choose a king is a faithless act. It's going against the whole project that God's been doing here. Uh, and then God talks to Samuel and says, yeah, you're right, Samuel. Um, this is a botch, but tell you what, let's give him the best we can find. So God gives him Saul, starts out great, goes downhill. Then David starts out great, goes downhill, etc. And God says, okay, if you want to play this game of royalty, we'll play this game of royalty, and I'll give you the best I can find. And along the way, I'm also going to raise up another institution alongside the monarchy as a check and balance. That's prophets. The prophets are there. If you read through the story, whenever the king's on the right track, the prophet is supporting the king. Whenever the king is off track, you think of David and Nathan walking in and talking about the Bathsheba incident and pointing in David's face and saying, you're the man. Uh, that was one of the key roles of the prophets, was to be a check and balance of this misbegotten power. Then you go through the whole story of the Old Testament and the Davidic monarchy finally falls to Babylon, and the hope is there that when we finally get back, we can reinitiate it. We can finally get a new king. David will come back. That's the hope. David never comes back. And then as Jesus shows up, are you, are you the son of David? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we're looking for? And Jesus' basic answer is, yeah, and it's not at all what you think. All the descriptions of Jesus' kingship are very unkingly. So all that trajectory of kings, here's God, I'm convinced, working with what's there in the world, working with who we are, what we're grappling with at the moment, and bringing us to step by step to a new place. We still haven't figured it out. But that's part of why we're talking things today like instead of kingdom of God, shall we call it something like the beloved community or things like that? Are there different ways, different metaphors to use besides king to convey what God's up to in the world? You get a feel for what I mean when I'm talking about trajectories? Okay, purity's got one too. Bible's going somewhere. So we're going to look at three things today, two of them really briefly, and one of them more extensively. First one is that purity is going to move metaphorical. Second is that God's going to start to redraw boundaries. And third is all about Job and the sea. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit. You know that song? This is the most famous Old Testament verse about purity going metaphorical. What does it mean for God to create in us a clean heart? In terms of all the clean and unclean stuff we've been seeing, what would this even mean? Trying to live a, a clean life in general. Thinking about your actions. He is a smart Thinking brain. about your actions, good. Brain. That's helpful, though. The, the, we, we tend to think of heart as emotional. Uh, the biblical heart is this, it does have emotion in it, but it's the seat of your will and your decision making and your thinking. Um, your kind of life commitments are your heart. So Lord, take my life commitments, take my decisions and my, the choices that I make and make them clean. What does that mean? Come on. I understood this as uh, having to do with intentions, that our intentions which is the same they, as clean. That they, <laughs> yeah, that they come uh, from an understanding of God's presence in our lives. Okay. I, I totally agree with you. I'm not sure how you get from the language of purity to that metaphor. Um, but I, I, I think that's exactly where, the, where it's going. Not just following the rules, but that's what's in your heart to do those things. Now, what is in your heart? How is your 
how is your will and your basic life orientation shaped in a way that does whatever purity was supposed to do? I'm not going to answer, the, I, I just want you to feel the, the discomfort of what that meta. We've lived in this for so long, created me a clean heart. I love that image. We're not always sure exactly what it means. That's true about metaphors all the time, isn't it? Okay. Jesus will pick this one up in the New Testament. Here's a preview of next week when Jesus redefines purity. They're putting him on the spot about what makes you clean and unclean. And he said, it's not the stuff that you ingest. It's not the stuff that you take into your body that makes you clean or unclean, because that's just going to go through your elementary canal and down through the whole system, and you're going to poop it out at the end. He didn't say that quite that way. It goes, it goes out into the sewer. Okay. Um, instead, what makes you what makes a person unclean is what comes out of the heart. Blood? Isn't that what comes out of the heart? No. We've moved metaphorical, haven't we? It's what comes out from within. And Jesus is, is really talking about a, a heart that's been wounded, a heart that's not shaped the way God designed it to be, and uncleanness comes out of it. That's next week. All I want you to see now is this metaphorical move from one kind of purity to another. Second, God redrawing the boundaries. This is my favorite example. It's Isaiah 56, 1 through 8. Uh, you can look it up if you wish, but you don't need to. This is the section of the book of Isaiah that had, talks about the return from exile in Babylon. So 40 to 55 is spoken to the exile. 56 and on is spoken to when they finally got to return from exile back to Jerusalem. And as they came back, there were a couple of groups of people that were a little worried. One of them is foreigners. Somebody let some Swedes in there, apparently. <laughs> um, there, are, there are folks non-Jewish from Babylon that have joined up with Israel. Is this because of marriage? Is it spouses coming home? Is it some who have looked at Israel's religion and thought, that's really something I like a whole lot more than what we've been doing here in Babylon? Is that what it is? We don't know. We just know that there are these foreigners coming back. And there are enough Old Testament laws and things that kind of look down on foreigners. None of them that totally exclude them, although it depends on which foreign, foreign group you come from. There are some that are excluded for only 10 generations, and others that exclude for three generations, and others that are excluded forever. There's a boundary going on here. They're worried. The other group is eunuchs. What's a eunuch? Can't procreate. Got some, got some purity stuff going on here. Yeah, it's a castrated man. Uh, Babylon and other empires like that regularly practice this. They would take the cream of the crop of the young men of the conquered population, castrate them, and raise them up in their civil service. That's to castrate them is to say, you've got no future besides me, besides us, besides Babylon. We're your future. We control you. Um, Babylon did that to a, chances are in the book of Daniel, we don't know for sure, but Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel probably were all castrated. That's just what Babylon did. So much so that scholars speculate that there were young Israelite men that might even have volunteered for the procedure in order to get ahead in Babylonian civil service. So if they're the cream of the crop, isn't it self-defeating Say that again? If they are the cream of the crop, isn't it self-defeating not to let them procreate? Self-defeating on Babylon's part? Yeah. No. In the, I suppose in the sense that if you're thinking genetically and producing the best strains, it would be self-defeating. If you're thinking more in terms of we want to control the, the top people, um, and then we'll find some more top people when they're gone. So did they not have a concept of the genetic I don't know if they thought about that much. They certainly thought about it in terms of their own producing um, royal heirs and that kind of thing. I don't think they had the, the fittest seed should be producing, and I don't think that's part of it. Yeah. Nope. 
So now some of these folks are wanting to come home to reestablish life in Jerusalem as well. And they are worried. Why should they be worried? They don't, they don't cope. Yeah. They don't fit the code, yeah. It never actually says in these passages that they are unclean, but certainly in the, with what we've seen of the, of the shape of Levitical purity, they would definitely be unclean. On two counts, one is the production of seed, and the other is uh, the wholeness of life issue. Their bodies have been maimed. On both counts, they would be unclean. Here's also this. Oops. Everybody's favorite, every man's favorite verse in the Old Testament. I'm sure you all knew that one really well. But Deuteronomy 23, verse 1. This one is specifically saying that a eunuch is not allowed in the assembly of the Lord. That's the worshiping community of Israel. They are excluded from the worshiping, worshiping community. We don't have a lot of information about why this verse is there, but it certainly fits in with the patterns of purity that we've been looking at. Okay. So here's what these two groups are saying. Don't let the foreigner join to the Lord and say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. That's their worry. And by the way, in the next generation, um, Nehemiah and Ezra did exactly that. They broke the mixed marriages and sent the foreigners home. So that's the other reaction to how should we survive in this time. And don't let the eunuch say, I am just a dry tree. I can never produce, I can never, I'm excluded because there's no future for me. Here's what God says to the eunuchs. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house, where's that? In the temple. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and name better than sons and daughters. What's God saying to these eunuchs? Absolutely included. Yeah. Not only included, but honored within the very temple itself. What is it saying about God's own word in Deuteronomy 23? That one's out. This one's in. That's out. This is in. I want you to see that, that here, if God is involved in all of these texts, God is saying, I'm chucking Deuteronomy 23.1. I'm doing something different now. That's worth noticing. Isn't it also sort of a social issue where you have these people who never married, never had any family, who's going to care for them when they get to the point where they can't care for themselves? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Who's going to take care of them in their old age? Huh? Yep. But if your daughter falls for one of them? <laughs> If your daughter falls for one of them, you're not going to have grandkids. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, we could spend all the, this is how that passage ends. Jesus says, uh, Jesus, Jesus is going to quote this from the Gospel of Mark. God says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for, so just some Jews. All oh, peoples. Thus says the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. Are you seeing the dynamic of this passage? What God is doing? So, nobody was uncomfortable with Ezra and Nehemiah then, who were, you know, Isaiah was there, but they just said, yeah, no. Now there's probably a gap of maybe a generation between this part of Isaiah and the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah, Nehemiah particularly. Ezra's dates are a little less clear. Um, but it's the same basic uh, time in history. You've got two radically different approaches for how to reconstitute the community back in Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah is absolute purity, racial purity at this point. Um, only Jews. Um, God through Isaiah 56 is a very different approach, a very different kind of inclusion with um, with a confession at the heart of it for those eunuchs, those foreigners who cling to me and keep my Sabbaths, etc. So there's a there is a different kind of it's a sort of an inner boundary rather than an outer boundary. 
And it sets up now this pattern of a God who's renaming God's self as the gatherer. I'm going to gather more folks yet. Jesus will pick that up too. That's next week. Okay, Job in the Sea. Here's where we're going to spend the rest of our time today. Leviathan? How many of you are familiar with Leviathan? Chris, what do you know about Leviathan? Um, a mythical sea beast that was thought to be a plesiosaur, not a crocodile or a... A plesiosaur. I like that. Plesiosaur. Yeah. I'm a double major. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> a mythical sea beast. A mythical sea creature. Yeah. Now some of the earlier before we ever discovered dinosaur bones and all that kind of stuff and sort of exploring um, the myths of the region, biblical students would look at Leviathan and say, it's probably the crocodile. It's not the crocodile. Okay. If you read the 41st chapter of Job, I've never seen a crocodile that breathes fire. Have you? We're talking dragon, sea dragon. That's what we're looking at. Okay. Isaiah 27, verse 1. On that day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and will kill the dragon that is in the sea. Here you've got three terms for him. Leviathan, fleeing serpent, Leviathan, twisting serpent, and the dragon that's in the sea. We've got a sea dragon of some kind. Oh, sorry, wrong, wrong picture, sorry. Okay. Um, I forgot to mention at the beginning of the hour, by the way, that um, a couple were asking last time, is it possible to have all these slides put, made available as well? And so Cody has very graciously put that together for us, so that if you go to the podcast thing, you'll find the podcasts, you'll also find these slides, which is why I'm mentioning that now, in case somebody's listening and wondering what they're laughing about, um, and also the handouts. You'll find those there as well. It's a sea dragon, something like that. Uh, biblical scholars will talk about what they call in German, of course, the Chaoskampf, the battle with chaos. Um, well, did God create the Leviathan for the sport of them? Huh? We'll get that. <laughs> yep, that's why the rubber ducky was back there, actually. Okay. So, Chaoskampf, the battle with chaos, there are, num there are lots of, within the world, and especially in this region of the world, myths that talk about creation as happening as a battle. A battle with a monster. In the Babylonian version, you've got uh, originally Apsu and Tiamat. Apsu is the fresh under underground water. Tiamat is the salty seawater. And they mate and they produce all kinds of beings and it becomes a chaotic mess really fast. And finally, the gods say, it's Apsu that says, we need somebody to help us out here. They call on Tiamat, who becomes, pardon me, Marduk, who becomes the chief god of the Babylonians, to do battle with Tiamat. He defeats Tiamat, dismembers her, and yes, it's a she, uh, tears her apart, and out of her body creates the world. Uh, that's, the, that's the kind of basic chaos battle myth. Uh, Tiamat, Marduk and Tiamat. Tiamat, that word in Babylonian, comes into Hebrew as the word tahom, which is a word for the great deep in Genesis. And the, and the spirit of the Lord was hovering over the face of Tom. Tiamat shows up there. But she's not a monster now, she's just a deep. That's all she is. Lotan is the Canaanite name for Leviathan. Um, it, that's the sea monster that um, Baal had to, every year on New Year's Day, he had to reconquer this monster so that there could be creation for another year. This is the waters of, of chaos being beaten back to make life thrive. Some years, Baal couldn't do it, so his sister had to step in. Anna would do it sometimes. Uh, but Lotan, Leviathan in the Bible, Leviathan. This is a common myth throughout that, that region of the world. Creation by battle. And here we, I'm coming back to that Hebrew verb, hibdil, to divide or to separate. With the separations we had in Genesis, the one separating Israel from the nations, and how we're called to maintain purity by dividing, by separating. Some passages from the Psalms. Psalm 72, 74, Yet God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the earth. 
You divided the sea by your might. If we stopped right there, what would you think it's talking about? Water and light. Exodus. Exodus. Yep. Leaving Egypt, uh, dividing the water for Israel to pass through. You divided the sea by your might. That's what I would assume at this point. But keep going. You broke the heads of the dragons in the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave him as food for the wilderness creatures. This could still be a poetic way of talking about the Exodus. But now look where it goes. You cut openings for springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also the night. You established the luminaries and the sun. You fixed all the bounds of the earth. You made summer and winter. This is creation. Creation flows out of this battle. It's here pre presented poetically. Psalm 89. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab. That's not the Jericho prostitute. prostitute. She'd be offended if you called her the chaos monster. This is a different Rahab, spelled a little differently. And it's usually it's another term for Leviathan, usually in an Egyptian context. You crushed Rahab, scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, the earth also, the world and all that's in it, you have founded them. So again, you have the battle first with the sea, followed by creation. Psalm 104 is that great psalm of creation. Um, early on in that psalm, you cover the earth with the deep. There's Tahom, Tiamat, covering the whole world. As with a garment, the waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they flee. At the sound of your thunder, they take to flight. So here, instead of a battle, what does God need to do to make the sea go where it belongs? Rebuke it. That's all it takes. The waters rose up to the mountains. They ran down to the valleys, to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they might not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. That boundary between the sea and the dry land, from Genesis 1 on, is the crucial thing that keeps creation going. If the waters come back up over us, as they might in a few years now, if the waters come back up over us, that's uncreation, that's chaos. The world is falling apart. Think of the flood story and all of those. This is, the sea now becomes the prime emblem, emblem of impurity. Chaos, utter, utter uncleanness, it's anti-creation. So far so good? Now here, at the end of that same psalm, yonder is the sea, great and wide, creeping things, things that should be innumerable are there, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan that you formed for? To sport in it. The Hebrew verb means to laugh or to play. So now what does Leviathan become? A plank. Um, notice, notice how the Bible is playing with the mythology? It's using the mythology. In all of these psalms, we're talking about creation or we're talking about uh, the chaos between nations. There are several different contexts. But using this chaos monster myth as a way of getting at God's gracious care and, and setting bounds to the, pro the chaotic, chaotic problems. Okay. Um, there's another one. I, I think I'll skip over some of these. It's just more of the same. We'll see them on your sheet. Isaiah 51. Um, here, here now is that same picture used exactly for the Exodus. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, and made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? God is conquering the chaos monster in the Red Sea now to let the redeemed come out to freedom. Okay, we looked at that already. New Testament. We'll look at this more next week too. Jesus says to the disciples, let's get in the boat and go across to the other side. And they get in the boat. And what happens? Huge storm. Don't you care if we perish? Why are you sleeping there on the pillow, Jesus? And he says, well, you have little faith. What, what, what are you worried about? He rebukes the wind and the waves, and they say, who in the world is this that the wind and the waves would obey him? What 
you're seeing in that. Demonstration that he's the Lord. Demonstration that he's the Lord. Here is another conquering of the chaos monster. Same thing in chapter 6 when Jesus is walking on the surface of the water. You've got these storms on the sea that, as we'll see in Mark next week, Jesus is dealing both with, it, Mark is both talking about this, this picture of the one who puts chaos in its place and dealing with the disciples whose own inner beings have become chaotic at this point. That's next time. Here's our text from this morning from church. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Anybody know what comes next? And the sea was no more. Have you ever noticed that in Revelation 21? I like the sea. I hate this verse. I want there to be a sea. What does it mean? Chaos. No more chaos. No more ever again a threat to God's created order and the fullness of life. The sea was no more. That's all John has to say. And he's invoking this entire chaos battle throughout scripture. Okay. So, book of Job. Um, if you're familiar with the book of Job, or if you're not, if you're familiar, you're aware that the first couple of chapters are a prose a narrative. Um, setting, up the, setting up the situation with God and the Satan. And by the way, in Job, it's the Satan. It's not a name, it's a, it's a title. It's basically God's quality control engineer. That's what this is. Job's checking out, walking around. I mean, the, the Satan is checking everything out. Have you checked out this? Have you checked out that? And God says, have you checked out Job? Job's living everything the way I want him to. And the Satan says, okay, let's test him out. Let's put a few tests to this model that you've produced here. As you know the story, Job loses all of his, his uh, possessions and his animals. He loses all his children. He keeps his wife, but he loses, uh, he loses his health. In chapter 2, he's got boils on his body, which it doesn't say it in the text there, but you know Levitical purity now. What does that make him? Unclean. Unclean. That would be a leprous disease. So he himself is unclean, and chaos has torn his life apart. Right? So then start with chapter 3, starts the poetry. And you've got all these chapters of Job and his quote-unquote friends uh, arguing back and forth about why this is happening. Until finally chapter 38, God intervenes and speaks. In Job's speeches, here's where he begins. He begins by cursing his birthday. I wish I had never been born. Uh, I wish it had been darkness and gloom instead of light. And then he says, let those who curse my birthday, let those curse it who curse the sea, those who are skilled to rouse up Leviathan. Job is invoking this same chaos monster image to say, let those who control that monster uh, wipe out my life too, bring chaos over my life. In other words, he wishes to undo his own creation. Chapter 7, he's praying to God and saying, Am I the sea or the dragon that you set some gar over me? That is, you think I'm the chaos monster? Why are you doing this to me? Chapter 9, God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Trampling language. Chapter 26, with power God stilled the sea. With understanding God struck down Rahab. God's hand pierced the fleeing serpent. So God did all that, but... What kind of a whisper do we hear of God nowadays? Where is God who supposedly controls all this stuff? Now, chapter 38, God finally speaks. And if you've read those chapters, they're not very comfortable, are they? It's like, I feel like God's just slapping Job down. So it starts out. Job 38, uh, God first says, who is this who's talking without any knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, I've got some questions for you. God's first question, verses 4 through 7, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you've got understanding, surely you know. 
That's the first paragraph of this, or first stanza. The second paragraph stanza is, starts in verse 8. Have you got that in front of you or not? Okay, you don't need to. I'll read it for you. Job 38, verse 8. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and the thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and there shall your proud waves be stopped. Who shut in the sea with doors? So the very next piece of this whole creation thing that God's going to lay out there for Job is the setting boundaries to the sea, right? We're into that myth, that picture. What do you notice so far? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? It's almost treating it like a child. It's childbirth. Childbirth. Coming out from the womb. I'm wrapping it in swaddling bands and laying it in the manger. More than that manger. Yeah. That's childbirth and childcare. Right? Whose baby is this? Not who's the baby, but whose baby is it? Whose baby is the sea? Or is it chaos? Chaos is the sea. God. Why do you say God? Because God is the one that has the doors. God's the speaker. God's certainly the one who wraps it in swaddling bands. Whose womb are we talking about? God's womb. Chaos, the sea, the very emblem of chaos and impurity, is birthed from God's own womb. And God claims this child and wraps it in swaddling bands and lays it in something other than a manger. What do you make of that? It's funny. It's funny? Why would God create chaos as part of this created world? And here's then the set of boundaries for it, so it doesn't come up, coach up onto the land. Now as you go on from there, that's the key verse of this whole section. As you go on from there, God's going to do this wonderful parade of creation in front of Job, for Job to see. The first thing God does next is to talk about the sky whole bunch of stuff in chapter 38 about the sky phenomena that God has created, but you don't see a whole lot of sweet sunny days in here. What you see is snow and hail, torrential rain and thunder, ice and hoarfrost, lightning and clouds, wild weather. Job, look at the wonderful wild torrential weather that I create. What do you think? And God goes on to the animals, this parade of critters. The lion, the raven, the mountain goat, the wild ass, the wild ox, the ostrich, the war horse, the hawk, and the eagle. Notice anything about those critters? All unclean. Not all unclean. Half of them are. They're not peaceful. You're not talking about kitties or... They're not peaceful. You're talking really strong. Yep. These are wild, not peaceful critters. Uh, all of them are wild, except the war. The war horse is the only one that's been domesticated, and the only use for Israel, for a horse in Israel was war. They didn't use horses for normal activity. The horses for war. So all of them are wild, but the war horse, and that's for battle. Half of them are unclean. God's saying, look at these wonderful, unclean, wild critters that I made. I love them. They're mine. And if you read through that passage, you'll see all this stuff about childbirth in those verses as well. God caring for the, the birthings of each of these kinds of creatures. The only one, uh, the war horse there is, is for war and bloodshed. The only place that human beings show up in this whole picture, by the way, is in the last section where their corpses lying on the battlefield and the hawk and the eagle go pick them, up, pick them off. Really comfortable. 
Chapters 40 and 41, we move on to the super critters. There's William Blake's woodcut on the, the behemoth and Leviathan. So you've got God up above and a couple of angels, Job and his wife and his three friends, and God is pointing down to behemoth and Leviathan. This is the climax of what God wants to show us. Behemoth, probably modeled after the hippopotamus, but it's much bigger than any hippopotamus you ever knew. The super land critter. Hebrew behemoth is a beast or a wild animal. The plural behemoth, super critter. Okay. This is the first of the works of God. Can one pierce its nose with a snare? No. You can't control this. Look at my behemoth. Isn't that great? And then, Leviathan. Can you draw it out with a fish hook? Nope. Will you put it on a leash for your girls? I love that phrase. No one is fierce enough to dare to stir it up. And if you were to sit down and read through the whole of Leviticus, Leviticus Job 41, you'd see this um, marvelous description of, of a sea dragon. That's all that it is, is a sea dragon with its teeth and its scales and its breathing fire and smoke and all the rest. It's this monstrous thing in the sea. And it ends with, on earth it has no equal. Where have you heard that line before? A mighty fortress is our God. Who on earth has no equal? In the song? The devil. Okay. Our ancient foe on earth has no equal. That's why you can never stop singing the mighty fortress at verse 1, because the devil wins. You have to sing the rest of the song, at least go out of verse 2. Um, were we in our own strength to confide, our striving would be losing, but now we've got a champion. Okay, that's where that line comes from, from the mighty fortress. And it's not the devil, it's, it's Leviathan. It's the chaos monster. A creature without fear surveys everything that is lofty, it's king over all that's proud. And then God stops his speech, and Job says, I think I didn't know what I was talking about. I think I recant. And God restores it. Okay. We could spend a lot of time on that. So here's my question for you. We'll spend a couple minutes on it now, and we'll come back to it next time. It's if the sea is, in fact, the emblem of impurity, of uncreation, of chaos, if it's the emblem of everything that purity is designed to keep in order and keep safe, what in the world is God saying about chaos in life, about ambiguity, about boundaries, about all the things that, that we would separate out to make us feel safe? What are you hearing? What are you seeing? That they have a role to play. They have a role to play might not understand what it is. And we might not understand what it is. In fact, not only does it have a role to play, it's God's baby. This is God's baby. This, this, you know, this makes a lot of people who want all the answers to be clear and very uncomfortable. Yeah, I think so. So here you have side by side, we do need to end and I'll end with this for today. Here you have side by side in the Old Testament, this entire purity legislation with setting boundaries, carefully setting boundaries for the sake of the flourishing of life. It's a life versus death kind of ethic that's involved in all of purity, but setting boundaries for safety and well-being and security and all that. And side by side with it, you have this vision from the book of Job where God's saying, the picture's a whole lot bigger than you know. There's a whole lot more. And in fact, the chaotic elements of creation are part of creation. What you think of as unsettling and unbounded is part of what I have designed. It's part of the whole system that I have shaped for you. And it's bigger than you understand. And both of those are God's word. You have no power if you have nothing to measure against. If you have, you have to have an enemy or a foe to measure your power against, or you have no power. You have to have an enemy to measure your power against. Isn't that okay. kind of dual, dualism? 
Yeah. That's actually part of part of what's unsettling about this is that all of our clear dualisms, all of our clear binary systems are being undercut with this vision. Okay, so where we're going next time is next time is Jesus to see what in the world he's doing with all this stuff. And the time after that is Paul to see what in the world Paul's doing with all that stuff. And with those two, of course, we'll answer every question and solve every mystery. <laughs> and I just lied to you, shamefacedly. Let's, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you that your vision and your creative power are so much grander than our little pictures. Lead us, Lord, shape us so that your vision is healthy and strong and vibrant in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.